Well, good morning. Welcome to Crossbridge, ladies and gentlemen. If you're here in person, thank you for braving the rain. And if you're here online, let us know in the chat. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the online pastor here at C3. And uh, I don't know about you, but up until about Wednesday, I was having a great week. And then when the weather changed, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, and then this morning, it just felt super gloomy. Um, but I love that last song that we just sang, uh, and our worship team led us through, where that line in the bridge where it says, if I join you in the suffering, then I get to join you when you rise. And that's what this whole series that I kicked off last week is all about, the last 24, where we are walking through the final moments of Jesus' life prior to being crucified, being murdered by his own people. And the reason that we are doing this series at this time is to prepare our hearts for Easter because we believe that we can't celebrate the resurrection of life without first lamenting the death of Jesus. And in the Western culture, it's so difficult, I believe, for us to truly lament, for us to live into that suffering, for us to embrace the moments of pain because we are so hope-filled as a generation, as a culture, as a society. But Jesus, in his final moments, as we talked about last week, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is literally begging God for another way, and his body is experiencing so much trauma that he is sweating blood. But that's just the beginning of the next 24 hours that are filled with betrayal, mockery, flogging, scourging, his body be, being beaten brutally to then only be placed on a cross and dying under six hours for you and for me. And I just want to preface today is going to be heavy. And as I was studying this week, that's part of why Thursday and Friday and then even last night were difficult because I went on so many rabbit trails trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about because there's so much to cover in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life prior to being murdered. And all of it is difficult to process. All of it is necessary to understand, though. To reflect on what Jesus went through. And so if you weren't here with us last week, like I shared, we walked through the Garden of Gethsemane. And right towards the end, Judas comes with the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders and then many guards. Actually, when I was looking um, up and researching this week, some scholars believe that there were over 600 soldiers that came with Judas. That's how big of a deal this arrest was at night. And we cut the story off right as all the disciples fled. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today because I spent just one day focusing on the garden, but there's so much more that happens. And so we're going to turn to Mark chapter 14 and dive right in today. Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn with us there, whether you're on version or you have the Bible here with you as well, um, and then you want to just flip to us, Mark is significant because it's the first gospel that was actually written, and then Matthew, Luke, Matthew and Luke are believed to have um, referenced Mark's gospel when writing their scripture as well. And then John does a little bit of referencing all of them, but then kind of goes his own way. And so Mark is significant because he has the opportunity first to write about this Jesus guy who transforms the world through his suffering. And so right after Jesus is arrested in the garden, Mark carries on the story here in chapter 14, verse 53, and writes this. They then took Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests, 
the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. I want to pause there for a second. Mark gives us quite a few details. First, right prior to this, as he's being arrested, it says that all the disciples flee. And so we know at one point, Peter had chosen to run away from the scene. But then Mark begins this section saying that after a safe distance, when the guards had taken Jesus away, Peter started to follow Jesus. And John actually shares that there's another disciple, which many gospel writer, or many scholars believe that that is the gospel writer, or the, the um, sorry, the disciple John who is following with them behind at a distance. And they actually are right there in the courtyard with Jesus. We know that from John's gospel and Luke's gospel because he's within looking distance of them as the trial is going on. And so the Sanhedrin arrest Jesus and bring him to be tried for death. Here's a couple of facts that we need to know about the Sanhedrin. First, it is a group of 71 individuals, 70 uh, leaders, and then one high priest. And we find this in Exodus when Moses is there pleading to God that he needs help ruling over Israel. There's too many people. And so God says, anoint 70 leaders and then yourself as the high priest, the individual, to then rule over the nation to make decisions and to... uh, figure out what type of crime or what type of blessing individuals should receive. And so this is where we get the Sanhedrin. So there were 70 individuals plus the high priest, 71 who are there at night to try Jesus. But these are some significant facts that we need to understand about the trials of the Sanhedrin. First and foremost, it was illegal for them to have trials at night. And it was illegal for them to have trials during a festival, both of which were happening right now. They had arrested Jesus in the privacy at night so that they could be secret about it. And then secondly, 
It was right prior, the eve of the Passover, the eve of the uh, seven-week or seven-day to eight-day festival, if you add the Passover meal in there, of unleavened bread, where they remember Jesus or remember God helping them escape from Egypt, passing over, helping them escape oppression. And so they're doing all of this so that they can get to the celebration as quickly as possible. The second fact that we have to understand about this illegal trial is that the Sanhedrin were not legally allowed to condemn individuals the same day that their trial was. And so if their trial resulted in the death punishment, they had to wait 24 hours before actually sentencing it out and confirming. And I imagine this was so that they could give the Sanhedrin more time to process or any more witnesses to come through. But we see this also doesn't happen with Jesus. Right as he is condemned, just a few hours later, he is then sent to Pilate, and then just a few hours later, he is put on a cross and crucified. The third fun fact about this whole situation, which makes it even more illegal, is that you had to have two or three witnesses with perfect stories confirming the incident. They didn't have video cameras or uh, microphones to record the audio, and so you needed at least a minimal of two individuals with perfect stories corroborating one another. And if you didn't have that evidence, what's interesting is if the stories didn't align, it was in their laws that they then would also give the same punishment to the witnesses that were falsely testifying. And that doesn't happen here either. The final fact about this that we don't see but we're going to address in a little bit is that the individual who is being tried in the Sanhedrin trials has an opportunity to present witnesses to confirm that they are innocent or that they deserve a lesser punishment. And Jesus doesn't have the witnesses to confirm that. Or does he? So we're going to pick up the story back in Mark chapter 14. Verse 66, here's what Mark writes. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the serving girls on the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she had again said to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him in the Last Supper, not too long before this. Before the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shares a prophecy with Peter and says, After the rooster crows two times, you would have already denied knowing me three times. Peter said, there's no way. I will die for you, Jesus. Jesus says, you won't this time, but you might later. And so Peter broke down and wept. I'm going to stop there for a second. Like I shared earlier, Peter followed Jesus to the courtyard. And what's so interesting is as soon as Peter denies knowing Jesus the third time, Luke writes in his gospel that Jesus makes direct eye contact with Peter. And so Jesus, in John's gospel, has the opportunity 
to present witnesses. And the high priest asked Jesus, are you going to defend yourself? And Jesus says, why don't you ask those who are with me? Because Peter and John were with Jesus. They were there in the courtyard. They were within direct eye contact, had the opportunity to stand up and defend Jesus in the trial, and they stayed silent. Peter recognizes that he disowns Jesus, betrays Jesus, and breaks down and weeps. And this is the final time that we hear about Peter prior to the resurrection. We don't have any evidence that Peter was at the cross, at the crucifixion, watching it go down. So what we imagine happened is similar to Judas. He runs off and is experiencing great depression. Opposed to Judas, he doesn't take his life. I imagine he wanted to, though. And you see, we have the end of the story. We know what happens. And even though Jesus told the disciples time and time again that he is going to be reborn in three days, that he's going to be resurrected, and that there is going to be glory outshining the darkness, the disciples, as we see even here, fail to understand Jesus. And so he probably flees thinking that's the last time he's ever going to see Jesus. He has betrayed innocent blood, an innocent man, and the last thing that Jesus saw him do was deny knowing him and refusing to stand up and be a witness. And so it gets even worse. This is where it gets heavy. We're going to move on to Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And as I was researching, this was probably about 6 a.m. in the morning. Many of us had trouble getting up at 8 a.m. to get here today. This is 6 a.m. Jesus probably didn't eat, drink, or sleep during the night. He was beaten while he was with the Sanhedrin. And then he goes to face a second trial with Pilate because the interesting thing about all of this is the Jews could condemn people to death, but legally, by their law, they weren't allowed to carry out the death sentence. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. You are not allowed to take innocent life, and they had no evidence. And so the Sanhedrin get up early because they have to take them to the Roman officials to carry out the death for them. Verse 2, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Verse 65. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
Jesus is there for trial number two. And then the other gospel writers actually write that because Pilate had no basis for condemning him, he sent him over to Herod to try to condemn him under his jurisdiction. Herod found no basis for condemning Jesus, so he sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate's standing there, and his wife comes up to him and says, Hey, I had a dream about this man, and I believe that it is a vision that you shouldn't, you shouldn't touch this man. I believe that something very dark will happen if you touch this man and have him murdered. And so that's why Pilate goes up to him and says, Hey, I find no basis of this. I'm going to wash my hands of this crucifixion, and I'm going to please you. Because the Greek words that are used here actually describe that the crowd was forming an uprising. And this was the biggest fear of the Romans and the biggest fear of the Jews. They both were terrified of one another taking over the other party. You see, the Romans were terrified that the Jews were going to form an uprising and retake and take over Jerusalem without Roman jurisdiction. And the Romans were, uh, or sorry, the Jews were terrified that the Romans were going to stop giving them so much leeway, so much safety, and going to take over them and take away their laws, take away their religion. And so they both tried to do things to please each other. And so the Sanhedrin recognized this. They recognize Jesus, they can't legally crucify him themselves. And they have no evidence really to do so from a Roman standpoint. So then they start to talk politics with Pilate. And the other gospel writers actually do a better job of portraying this where they say that they start calling Jesus the king of the Jews to Pilate to explain to Pilate that he claims to be a king himself. He is here to overthrow you, Pilate. So Pilate gives in to their demands. And this is where it gets pretty heavy. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie, uh, as I was researching this week, it's actually fairly accurate what happens next with the beating and the scourging that the Romans do. And I had chosen to eat my lunch while I was watching this documentary from the Discovery Channel. And it was a very poor decision on my part. Because it's gruesome. Jesus is condemned to be flogged. And this wasn't just a normal flogging. You see, the Romans perfected torture, and they perfected death. And so one of their favorite torture mechanisms and punishments was scourging by use of the flagrum. And what this looked like is they would take a prisoner, regardless of their crime, they would then strap them back, um, back exposed over a two-foot a uh, two-foot column made of granite. They would strip them completely naked so that it was humiliating to them. Then they would have two soldiers standing on each side of the prisoner. And based on that prisoner's crime, determine how many whips the flagrum would be used across the back and the whole body of the prisoner. The lesser the crime, the lesser the whips. Now, flagrum was made up of three leather pieces, and inside the leather were bone shards, glass, metal, iron, and it was their favorite torture of choice. You see, the Jews had a limit where Jewish leaders could only whip with a flagrum or scourge someone up to 39 times, but the Romans didn't have this limit. The Romans often went over 40 and sometimes resulting in the death of their prisoner. And so many scholars actually believe based on the prophecy in Isaiah that says that his body will be beaten more than any other man, that Jesus was scourged 
40 plus times. Ruthless, disgusting, disturbing scene. And the, soldier would, the soldiers would go simultaneously back and back. And when I was watching this documentary, they actually replayed this situation on a, on a carcass of a cattle. And after X amount of times, they took the carcass off and they saw that the bones were snapped because of how hard they were being hit. The liver fully exposed. Muscles completely shredded. And so this is Jesus' body prior to being crucified. Where Pilate has him flogged, has him scourged, his body ripped apart. To only then have a crown of thorns smashed on his head. The Greek word for it, it's not just placed on his head. The Greek word is literally to smash, to push heavily down into the skull of the head of the prisoner. To then carry his cross outside of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha to be crucified, to be murdered, where, as we talked about last week, they would position the body on the cross in a way where their knees were slightly bent. They would have a small stool below them, and then they would nail either in the hands or wrists and then the feet or ankles of the prisoner. And the only way for the individual to breathe because of how their body was positioned was to pr- press up, scraping their body on the cross. Now remember, Jesus' body, his back had just been scourged to death. So this is the experience that we have with Jesus prior to being killed. It's gloomy, it's dark, it's disturbing, it's disgusting, it's painful. There's nothing beautiful about this. And as actually we were talking with the youth kids last week, um, the question came up, you see, the whole point of Roman crucifixion was to humiliate the individual and to scare off other individuals from committing the same crime. We have all the nice pictures of Jesus fully clothed or half clothed or barely kind of beaten and bruised and whatnot, but Romans, they left their crucified individuals completely exposed and naked on the cross to completely humiliate them. And this was Jesus' experience. Beaten, bruised for you and for me. And so here are the three takeaways from this story today that I want us to walk through process uh, because this is a heavy story. And honestly, I can't do it justice um, as I walk through this story, through this, these passages. This is something that I truly want us to lament and, and, and process throughout the week because we are guilty of the crime that Jesus experienced for our innocent blood. And so the first takeaway is this. Uh, We are no different than the Sanhedrin. We are no different than the Sanhedrin. You see, the Sanhedrin were looking for every single loophole they could find to have Jesus murdered. They wanted Jesus murdered, especially after he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, because they were worried that the Romans were going to find out that Jesus was a strong, powerful being and then have the Jews silenced because of it. So they picked up their um, desire to have Jesus crucified after the resurrection of Lazarus. And so they started finding every single loophole, and we are no different than the Sanhedrin. A couple of weeks ago, Brad and myself co-taught. And when we were co-teaching, we were uh, walking through this idea of loophole Christians. Of what does it look like for us as individuals to try to find loopholes for how we love every single person. And this is what the Sanhedrin did. 
They broke so many laws, so many customs that they were supposed to be following to then try to prove an innocent man guilty when then themselves were innocent or were, were guilty. But we're no different. We do the same what, things when we have individuals in our lives that we struggle to love. Same things when we make up excuses for why we can't be generous, for why we can't volunteer or serve on Sunday mornings, for why we can't love individuals who are addicts, part of the LGBTQ plus community, living in poverty, third world developing countries. We are no different than the Sanhedrin. Takeaway number two, we are no different than Peter. No different than Peter. Or Peter is this individual, this disciple, who we often put on a higher pedestal because he was thought of as the high top dog, but betrays Jesus, denies knowing him three times. And then when he has the opportunity to be the witness for Jesus, he backs down. But we do the same thing every single time that we choose lust, that we choose addictions, that we choose not to do time alone with God, that we choose not to give, that we choose not to share the gospel of Jesus, that we choose not to love individuals who are different than us. Every single time that we do things that are a part of the secular world opposed to the Christ-like world, we are just like Peter. And then the last takeaway is this. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve Jesus. There's nothing you could ever do to earn what Jesus did for us. Where Jesus' body was scorched with the flagrum, where he was placed on a cross, where he was dehydrated, where he was deprived of food, water, all of his friends had left him. And he still said, you know what? You, you're so worth dying for. Peter tried to earn Jesus' love in those last moments. Where he was at the last supper, he says, God, Jesus, I would literally die for you. There's nothing I could, you could ever ask me to do that I wouldn't do. And Jesus calls him out and says, hmm, guess what? Counteroffer, you're actually in just a few hours going to deny knowing me. Peter tries to earn Jesus' love there. It doesn't work out. We don't deserve Jesus. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn the grace of God. And guess what's so powerful about this? Is that God loves us anyways. He literally sent his only child to be beaten and bruised so that we could live. I don't know where you're at today. But I want us to stop trying to earn Jesus' love. Stop trying to earn the resurrection of Christ. And simply be, live, and thrive for God. Understanding that we are sinful individuals and this death should be on us. I have the worship team up here. We're going to close with a song that we've sang many times here called Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. And it's this powerful song that deals with the concept of God's love for us from a human standpoint seems reckless. Because in no perfect world should God have to send his perfect son to an imperfect world, earth, 
to die a sinner's death. That's reckless. That makes no sense. We don't deserve that. So throughout this song, I want you to be processing. I want you to be lamenting. I want you to truly call yourselves out. How are you like Peter? How are you like Judas? How are you like the individuals of the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus illegally? Innocent blood. Ask yourself, am I living any different?